Special thanks to our promotional partners at the American Philatelic Society. The APS is the largest stamp collecting organization in the world, supporting collectors of any level worldwide. For more information about membership and APS services, visit stamps.org. I'm Charles Epting from H.R. Harmer in New York City. I'm Michael Cortese of Noble Spirit in Pittsfield, New Hampshire. And this is Conversations with Philatelists. Now, Michael, this is one that we've been uh, waiting for for a long time. This is one that um, you you uh, persisted. You you scheduled this. I, when I was fi- trying to find the Zoom link, you actually <laughs> scheduled this call uh, two months ago. So yeah. that's why I, I, I was like, Michael, you didn't send me a Zoom link. And then I went back in my, my email history. So this is one we've had on the agenda for a long time. Why don't you tell yeah. people who we're going to be talking to? So – Today we're talking to Dr. Christy Potroff. We're we've been waiting f- to talk to her. You said I sent it in November. We, before then, we had a schedule. We've been waiting to talk to her for five or six months now. So she works at Boston College. I was going to oh, go say this is not a, a name that will be familiar to collectors. No, not at all. She works at Boston College as a, a professor of English. So she she's a she's a professor of literature. Yeah. I'm wondering why you invited her on Conversations with Philatelists. Then I feel like you may have uh, forgotten the title of our <laughs> podcast, Michael. <laughs> Guilty. Um, no, I'm going to leave it up to her to explain. Uh, but there is a postal connection here. Th- is There's the strongest postal connection. Okay. This um, is not some newfound interest in uh, English literature that you – No, you're have. definitely – if you're interested in the post office or collecting stamps, you're definitely going to want to take a listen to this one. Well, that's great. Let, let's have her on. I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited to hear about this because, again, yeah. I don't think we've had uh, a literature professor. So let, let's bring her on. I'm let's excited bring her in. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Hi. Hi. Hi there, Charles. Nice, nice to meet. You. Nice to nice meet to you. Meet thanks you. for uh, thanks for joining us, taking the time yeah, to. Uh, I'm glad to be here. Yeah. Excellent. How have you been uh, before we yeah, start doing things? Life is weird, but good. You know, I have little <laughs> to complain about. So, um, yeah, and it's delightful to talk to people about the post office. It's 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 been a while since that's happened. So I'm happy, happy for that. Um, yeah. yeah, I'm in Massachusetts, so it's winter, you know, wintry <laughs> now, but um, I miss the sun, but it's still nice enough to go for walks now and then. Mm-hmm. How, about, how about y'all? Where are you? Where are you zooming in from? So I'm in New Hampshire, um, oh. Pittsfield, New Hampshire, just 20 minutes outside of Concord. Nice. And, and I'm in uh, New York City. Oh, cool. Awesome. Yeah. So um, it uh, relatively the same as far as winter goes. Right. <laughs> I'm from Kansas originally, the Midwest, and oh, wow. um, the sun still comes out in the winter. You know, January and February, <laughs> every once in a while, you'll have a sunny day. Yeah. Um, I'm a California transplant. I've been here about a year oh, and a half. So ouch. I, um, I'm still that that storm. What was it? Three weeks ago now was. Um, <laughs> That was a, a bit of culture shock for me. Uh, no, it's it's pretty. Um, but yeah, nobody tells you everyone on the East Coast is grouchy because of uh, vitamin D deficiency. <laughs> but um, learned that one myself. Makes sense. <laughs> Makes sense. So thank you so much, Dr. Potroff, for, for meeting with us, taking the time out of your schedule to to talk to a couple of philatelists. Um, to kick things off, do you mind talking about a little about what you do as a, as a professor? Absolutely. So first of all, thank you for having me here. Um, It's really awesome to run into other people who are really excited about the post office um, and know um, about about the details. Yeah, um, I'm talking to people who aren't quite as familiar with how things worked in the past. So um, 
this will be fun. So I, uh, I'm in the English department um, at Boston College. Um, actually, I teach classes on early American literature. And my research interest, the book that I'm working on, is about uh, how American literature was transformed by the post office. So how increased speeds of transmission, um, kind of better service, postal service, kind of the universal service mandate largely created American literature as we know it um, over the over the course of the 19th century. So my book project, I, uh, I look at how postal technologies um, and certain changes to the way mail how mail was delivered um, shaped, uh, kind of sparked new changes in literature. So one of the chapters that um, I'm most excited about, I kind of uh, recently um, kind of revised uh, a draft of it, looks at how the stagecoach um, as, a, as a mail delivery vehicle actually gave rise to travel writing in the 1830s. Because if, if you're familiar with um, the way mail was delivered in the beginning of the 19th century, the U- U.S. Post Office Department contracted with private stagecoach companies um, paid much of the the operation operating costs with the postal subsidy subsidy that they received um, and because of that tickets for passenger stagecoach travel were very cheap um, and it meant writers like Washington Irving and Royal who's who's a writer who nobody really talks too much about um, but who, who wrote a lot in the in the 1830s would ride the stagecoach all over the country just describing what they saw so um, oh. Uh, and and at the same time, so this 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 stagecoach kind of worked to expose people to new parts of the country, uh, and also some of these writers had um, kind of this business savvy to actually be- bring trunks of their books um, that they'd written previously along with them. So the stagecoach became this almost site of literary production and distribution, um, thanks to the post office. So that's what my research looks like in the book. Um, but in the classroom, it kind of, it, it looks a little bit different, but it's still really focused on um, what the post office looked like in, in the 19th century and kind of hanging on to those material details. So one of the things that I do, um, especially if I'm reading, uh, or if we're, if we're reading stories by Edgar Allan Poe um, or um, Herman Melville, who wrote Bartleby the Scrivener, is to, is to really look at the way that um, mail was delivered, um, the way that letters worked in, in those decades, and see how that changes our interpretation of the story. So um, there's a famous story by Edgar Allan Poe that's called The Purloined Letter. It's one of his detective stories um, that, that he wrote. Uh, in 1843, but was first published in 1845. And, and if, if you know about postal history, the, that um, kind of transitional po- moment was really important, um, just in terms of what, st- what letters looked like, um, the price of, price of postage. So I have my students research, you know, kind of what, what it would take to send a letter in 1843, what the cost would look like, and then how that changed in 1845, and then how, that, um, how those changes really inform our understanding of the story. So for for Poe in particular, in this case, um, if if you if are you familiar with with the the Purloin Letter? Have either of you read this? I read it ages ago. Yeah, I, um, having yeah, quite some yeah. time. <laughs> That's fine. Yeah. Well, if if you have some free time, um, it's it's a good one to take up if you're interested in postal history because the material letter matters a lot. So basically, um, if I were to condense condense the plot of this story. A police officer is desperately searching for a lost letter that is supposed to have um, very salacious details of an affair that some royal unnamed person um, had written, um, and that kind of remains a secret throughout the story. 
But the police detective knows who stole the letter. Um, he knows it's in this apartment. And then he spends days and days um, over, over the course of, I think in the story, it's months, searching this apartment high and low for this letter. And it turns out the letter itself was just pinned in a letterbox um, hidden in plain sight. So, uh, so the story, you know, kind of recounts what it means to kind of be looking for something that 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 is hidden in plain sight. But it was written in this transitional moment um, when uh, envelopes came into use, usage much more. And um, immediately after the story was written and when it was published, uh, this understanding of the envelope kind of took took over, even though um, when when Poe was writing it, letters were sent in a very different way, kind of folded in on themselves, uh, sealed sealed closed, um, and basically the way that the letter letter was able to be hidden in plain sight is that the folds were reversed, um, and it was just kind of placed inside out, readdressed, mm-hmm. and then hidden hidden in plain sight. And and uh, the reason why this this story is so important, uh, those kind of material details, I think, are interesting. You know, kind of imagining what the, how this letter would have been hiding. Um, but if, if you've ever taken an English class, read the Scarlet Letter, you know that English professors like to make a big deal about little details <laughs> um, and kind of draw out, you know, kind of important, you know, kind of understandings of, you know, kind of human psychology or imagination or, you know, kind of what 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 have you. And the, this understanding of the letter as an enveloped letter hiding in plain sight uh, was the foundation for literary theory by um, Lacan and Derrida. So it's kind of sparked this, um, the, the debates that are called the purloined Poe debates um, about how meaning is made um, and kind of what it means to turn an envelope inside out. So it's, it's <laughs> I'm kind of going, going down a rabbit hole a little bit here, <laughs> but I think in some ways, attending to the material details of how mail was um, sent, letters in particular, um, and other literary forms, magazines, short stories, can really help us kind of get back in the mindset of, of writers and readers when they were when they were first experiencing and, and um, kind of coming into these stories. Um, and I think that, that that kind of understanding, you know, not only can bring us closer to, to these authors and kind of readers in the past, um, but can help draw attention to the, the changing ways that information is transmitted, um, is likewise influencing the way that we imagine our connections to one another, um, the way that, you know, we understand, you know, the speed um, and interconnectivity of the nation. So I think by kind of marking the contrast between where we are now and, you know, what postal exchange might have been like in the 19th century, I think really helps my students see, you know, what was different um, and then what's remarkable about where we are right now. That's fascinating. Can I can I ask what sparked yeah. your interest in teaching in this using this device using postal history as as uh, an explanatory explanatory device for for literature? I think largely it came from my from my research. So the um, the, the book that I'm working on is part of my dissertation that that I was writing um, when I when I was in New York, and uh, I, I think I, I came into the topic just from reading 19th century fiction, um, novels by Harriet Beecher Stowe in particular, you know, the post office plays a really important role. Um, but I think even kind of before coming into this, I kind of had more of a heightened awareness, I guess, of postal, um, the post office just in general, because I grew up in very rural Kansas, where, you know, one of the only buildings you could go into that wasn't your house was the post office. You know, there was public art. So it kind of felt like a different kind of space. Mm-hmm. Um, and on top of that, um, the town that I'm from was on the Pony Express route. So everything in that area is branded Pony Express. Um, and then 
I, when I realized that the whole thing was a publicity stunt, you know, like largely more of a publicity stunt than it was an actual viable means of communication. It just kind of, um, it, it changed the way that I understood, you know, the, the post office. So, so the, the students, if I may ask, how well do they engage with this kind of material being presented in this way? I think students, students like it a lot. And I think the post office just as a, um, as an infrastructure is something that's familiar to them. Everyone's received a letter, um, you know, kind of has a sense of how, how to do it. So, so when you present, um, so I have uh, several letters that I got on eBay, just really, you know, kind of low bids. There's nothing terribly remarkable about them. I have one, one here um, that's from I think the 1830s at some point. Uh, and I'll bring these into the classroom and then just set, set them in front of a student and say, you know, can, what do you notice about this? Um, what what can we learn from this letter just as a text itself? And and they're really quick to make these kinds of observations. So they'll notice there's no stamp. Um, the postage is handwritten. Um, they'll notice then that there's no envelope. That the letter itself um, is is the envelope, um, which kind of makes them reconsider expectations of privacy um, at at, at mm-hmm. certain moments. So I think looking at these material objects allows them to kind of make these very basic observations that then are connected to these kind of larger themes that really suffuse the literature of that period. Um, and this letter, letter that I held up, <laughs> um, I, I like a lot as well because I think it's hot. Um, oh, it's from 1834. And there are three, three writers, three different people who are writing to a single person and the sheet of paper, as you probably know, is very big, <laughs> you know, and every, <laughs> Every spot on the on the letter is is filled with text, um, and then when we look at the postage, it, it makes sense why why that is um, that it would have been very expensive to you know for people to send individual individual letters. So um, students, I think, are are able to learn a lot from these small objects that then they kind of take ownership of that knowledge because they're coming to these conclusions themselves, and it's not necessarily me saying expectations for privacy were different in the 19th century. They're kind of starting to see like what that might actually look like if you're writing a letter to a friend who's, who's in the next town over. Mm-hmm. So directly following that is, has any one of your, have any one of your students either during class or after your class uh, expressed an interest in continuing research down this path uh, outside of the work that you assign? I think um, just in terms of material culture, not necessarily stamp collecting, you know, kind mm-hmm. of in particular, um, but I think it does make students reevaluate the way that they approach the objects in their own homes. Um, yeah. Like that, that has been interesting for me um, because in classes where, you know, I focus very much on, you know, kind of material culture and this kind of history side of literature. Um, and, and possibly this is, you know, kind of <laughs> because I'm teaching students in Massachusetts, but I had a student who ended up writing a paper about uh, a very distant relative's um, Revolutionary War journal, um, so in, which was in his parents' home. Um, so I think in that way, you know, kind of bringing these, you know, kind of small objects uh, from the 19th century into the classroom, it, it, it makes them see how other small objects that might be in their houses um, yeah. are connected to this larger narrative of American history. And I think that's really important because I think, um, you know, seeing how your family fits, seeing how, you know, kind of how you're part of this larger story just really, really matters a lot. Um, I think people are looking for, for that kind of connection when, when they study history. So, so I have had students who um, just get really into old stuff. <laughs> um, I'd have to ask about um, Philately in particular. <laughs> but. Fantastic. So you 
had emailed me beforehand a copy of an article that you were working on that I wanted to talk about a bit. It was on how the uh, Postal Service dealt with pandemics of the past. Do you mind talking about that for a little bit? Sure. Yeah. I mean, this piece, you know, just just emerged um, out of the current moment <laughs> that, that yeah. we're in now. Um, I think I've been wanting to write some kind of op-ed about the post office for the last three years, you know, kind of long, longer than that, just being um, kind of the, the, the consistent funding struggles and, and the, you know, kind of, I think largely the misunderstanding of, of the post office and its and its fundamental role um, uh, by many people who operate the federal government. So there's, there's a lot, a lot that we could say about the post office right now. But I think I was just really drawn to, uh, to thinking about how the post office, post office, postal delivery changed in pandemics. Um, but also, uh, and I think for me, it was a consequence of, um, becoming more reliant on the post office myself, you know, not going into work anymore. Um, I ordered more things on Amazon, you know, I ordered more things by mail, I had friends who sent, you know, really beautiful letters, you know, I think that um, kind of um, social distancing kind of renewed, you know, kind of the most people's experience and and awareness of the, of the postal system. And I think I was, I was drawn to uh, kind of (laughs) just seeing how things changed in in past um, epidemics and pandemics. So one of the things that I, that I note um, and highlight the most in that article is um, what happened during a smallpox outbreak, um, part of a, part of a, decades-long epidemic, if, if you can even call it that, when it has no, you know, kind of no beginning and no end date. It just kind of um, carried on throughout for hundreds of years. But uh, when when the technology for smallpox vaccines became more portable, um, so basically when they found out how to kind of dry out the, the cells and then trans, they, they didn't need to... Um, uh, so then they could they could convey um, kind of the the vaccine cultures um, in an envelope, uh, kind of wrap it up in a small piece of paper, re you know kind of apply water or what have you, um, and then that was that was a smallpox vaccine. So in in the article, I was really struck by how central the post office was to delivering this vaccine, um, to imagining how to get this vaccine to as many people in the country as possible. Um, and in, in and this was the beginning of the 19th century. So in 1813, there was no other way that the federal government could imagine this, you know, kind of arriving uh, to to every American than through through the mail. And I think that if we are thinking about how the post office um, kind of exists now, it's it's never you know kind of seen as that you know kind of primary you know, kind of device for delivering. It things. struck me that they were doing this during wartime as well. Um, yeah. It's amazing that <laughs> right. I mean, this is uh, postal rates were elevated because there was it was so difficult to deliver mail, and yet they were still able to administer a vaccine by post. I thought was fascinating. Yes, absolutely. And the treasury, I, I think, um, if you got in the weeds with that that postal history, the reason why. Um, so Dr. James Smith, who kind of presented this um, this proposal to, to Congress, he he when he gave his presentation, he said he would do this without a salary, and it was largely because um, of the he knew that the, the Treasury was drained <laughs> because of the war. So, but but it was still seen as something that was really important, you know, something something that that needed to be done um, to ensure you know kind of a safe, yeah, secure the public <laughs> public life. So yeah, so so that uh, I think then the eighteen thirteen vaccine by mail, um, kind of post, uh, post office act, um, was really fascinating to me. And then just going back a little bit further and seeing how mail delivery needed to change to adapt the, to the needs of the public when they're kind of living with a contagious disease, I think was really fascinating to me. 
because we see the post office in operation long before germ theory <laughs> became um, uh, became accepted, you know, kind of the accepted idea. So there were a lot of bad ideas. Some uh, in in some places, and this was, I believe, during the yellow fever epidemic in the in the south. Um, mail was delivered in tar-lined bags, which I, you know, because was just trying to imagine what it might have been like for a postal worker to carry around <laughs> like a tar-lined bag and fish out, you know, like what, a, you know, could oh. have, like the 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 hindrance to to that kind of um, <laughs> precaution seems seems pretty substantial to me, but uh, but fascinating nonetheless. And I think um, it's uh, so, and that was one example. Another was um, taking letters. Uh, and perforating them with the special perforation paddles um, that are just these crazy looking like torture devices <laughs> um, that they would you know kind of stamp all of the envelopes with and then kind of air um, uh, put I think it's sulfur some kind of sulfur concoction by air um, into the into the letters themselves to try to um, get the germs out the bad air the miasma but it I mean it, even even just thinking about how yellow fever spread it that it would have done nothing <laughs> um, but the federal government still saw it as important to do something to treat the the letters to keep people from harm. So, uh, and this and this was done at great cost, great delay to the mail, some delay to the mail, I guess, um, in, in terms of transmission. But the public safety was was held um, kind of as at the highest regard. And I think today we're not necessarily seeing those same values, you know, kind of taking taking precedent in the way that um, the, the post office um, and postal workers are being asked to, you know, to do their jobs um, with, with very very little funding um, and not not enough resources even to cover some of the most <laughs> some of the most basic operations of the post office. Um, so. And and part of that research, one of the things that I also looked into, um, and I don't I don't know if uh, you've spent much time thinking about the Universal Postal Union Union and how that um, late 19th century institution kind of changed kind of stamp collecting and, and and the way that stamps worked. But that institution is still functions today, and I think they do a lot of good work because they really highlight what international post offices are doing that that works well. <laughs> and I was really struck um, just looking at some of these international, um, other countries that are still dealing with the pandemic and what they're doing, how they're using the post office to kind of meet the both like social and economic um, and public health needs <laughs> of, of their citizens. So um, one that I just really liked a lot, um, the Irish uh, post office commissioned um, a a children's activity book that uh, is actually really lovely. (laughs) Um, It's full of like like, age appropriate, like self-care, you know, things for for kids, um, ways of dealing with anxiety, ways of dealing with stress. Awesome, like poems, you know, it's just filled with interesting pandemic related coping material that the post office, you know, kind of commissioned and then delivered to all the kids. And then the Irish post office, again, um, I have a lot a lot of good things to say about it. They're doing wellness checks. So if there are elderly people who are living alone, um, whose family members might not feel safe, you know, to, to, to go out and visit them, postal workers will check in on them and report back. Um, wow. So I think those kind of wellness checks, that kind of um, kind of trying trying to meet the social good um, at, at some cost, I, I think can, can really do a lot. Um, I think it can help with morale and help with kind of real safety concerns, but also just kind of make people feel like they're in this together. And I feel like the, the post office is still situated <laughs> to do those kinds of things, but they're being funded at a level that they, again, um, are, are barely able to you know, meet the basic operations of, of the USPS today. It's interesting when you say that, and I'm reminded too, when you said growing up in Kansas, the post office was kind of the the only 
real building in a lot of it. I, I recently drove through um, uh, Missouri into Indiana and Illinois and and, across, and you, get, you go through these small towns and basically there's some houses and a post office. And I always thought it was fascinating that in 1935, when it came time to roll out Social Security, um, it was the post office where you went to receive your Social Security card because it was the only federal building that most towns had. If you're going to you know, it's like mailing a vaccine in 1813 or checking on people in Ireland today. The, the post office, you know, again, for as great as email and, and Zoom and everything, you know, for, for as much as that can take away from the post office, um, you know, the fact still remains that the, the USPS has a reach that's just unmatched. Absolutely. Not everything can be made digital. Yeah. I think there's some, yeah, we're very aware that there are some material things that still need yeah. to still need to reach people. Yeah. Um, one thing I'm interested in when you talk about the and it's sort of going back to the original conversation about the effects of, of the post on literature, you, you mentioned the stagecoach in the 1830s, which is interesting and I hadn't thought of. And then you mentioned that the Pony Express was um, I think the Pony Express is more of a cultural force <laughs> than a practical historic. I mean, obviously, the Pony Express is, has captured our imagination more than just about anything else. Um, when you look at sort of um, uh, postal uh, revelations or developments in the 19th century, whether it's, um, uh, you know, the postal reform of 1845, the introduction of federal stamps in 1847, uh, the UPU or rural free delivery. What do you think some of the, um, uh, I'm trying to think the right way to phrase it, some of the underrated changes were some things that maybe we don't think about. And then is there anything else like the, um, like the Pony Express that maybe, uh, you know, a lot of, um, uh, a lot of focus gets ascribed to it, but it might not have had uh, you. You might not have seen the impact demonstrated practically in your research. What What do you think are, are sort of these milestones, either way, you know, cultural or practical, that have shaped literature and American history at large? That's great. Yeah, I, I like that question a lot. Um, I think one of the one of the overlooked, and it, I guess in, in in a certain way, it's policy, but it's you know kind of just the the way that the post office worked and more in terms of um post post office routes um coincides with the with the the pony express in in some ways but if you if you look at a map of the u.s in the in the 19th century um and 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 see you know what states um are incorporated into into the u.s at, at, at a given moment when we get to 1849 which was the gold rush you'll see that california you know kind of sits alone on the west coast uh kansas is not yet a state missouri is not yet a state um, but the the other part of the U.S. is just you know kind of on the other side, um, and I think you know kind of popular imagination um, the, fueled by this understanding of the Pony Express would be that the mail just went across this vast wild west. You know these um, these people on horseback. You know kind of whatever you know kind of frontier fantasy you want to imagine. You know is coupled with that. Um, like that's the understanding I think of how how people would have stayed in communication with California. But if you actually look at the mail routes during that period, um, this is um, the, the mail from the east coast of the U.S. was actually going through Panama um, starting in in the 1840s. And um, so there was this really <laughs> widely used route um, because so many people moved to California in the 1840s and the 1850s um, with a promise of of wealth. And almost every person who went there traveled by way of Panama on a U.S. mail ship or a steamship that was commissioned to, to deliver to deliver mail. 
And one of the chapters that I'm working on in my book um, looks at how this kind of contact with Central America, um, Panama in particular, gave rise to um, kind of new new narratives. So if you look at kind of the proto dime novel, the really cheap paperback fiction in this period, so much of it. Uh, sets Central America, maybe not particularly Panama, but Mexico, um, and largely because the Mexican-American War um, was very a very recent memory. But the Central America becomes this playground for imagining um, U.S. identity, and I think part you know part of that um, is because of the U.S.-Mexican War, but another part of that is because a lot of U.S. citizens or people you know who who, who lived in the U.S. Um, were traveling through Panama um, to to reach California, so. I think that, that those the international uh, kind of touches, not even necessarily scope, but the way that the this national system kind of interacted uh, with international spaces, I think is is really overlooked in the 19th century, and I think is really fascinating if you get um, to that granular level of okay, if I were mailing a letter from Boston to San Francisco, like where would it actually go? And I think that um, you know, kind of following those those you know kind of routes has been really. Um, illuminating for me and thinking about how um, somebody in 1845 might, or 1849 really kind of might be, might be um, kind of staying connected to, to loved ones on, on a, on a distant coast. That's incredible. Yeah. I I guess. uh, And and to tie it back to the philatelic side of things, when we see those markings via Panama, via Nicaragua, those are, uh, those are exciting to us because that, you know, oftentimes means it's a, a particularly, particularly, uh, desirable cover if it's you know especially endorsed via Nicaragua those are those are um, big business for us so that 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 sort of um, I think marries the philatelic with the yeah. social history mm-hmm. yeah that's that's fascinating so to go back to the to the map portion that you were just talking about you actually on your website had created a map starting in 1709 going to 1817 of of all of the U.S. post offices that popped up and the exact month and year that they that they are created in kind of like a in a time loop it was really interesting so did you put that together yourself it pretty interactive too yes so yes and and there's a reason why it stops at 1817 at this point and it's just because it took a long fucking time to get all those dots in that, in that um yeah because there are a lot of post offices over the course of the 19th century um but i think uh it's something that I hope to continue um, because the um, the U.S. Post Office Department, the archive, is part of the National Archives in in D.C. and they have all of these records. You know, kind of mm-hmm. when exactly post offices were added, when names were changed, um, and there are you know kind of the, these hundreds of boxes of materials that just are not used at all yeah. or, or, or very rarely used. Um, and I think that they can teach us a lot about, um, you know, even if we want to see, you know, kind of on the town by town level, where were people moving, you know, where were towns added? Um, and I think for me, that's been one of the interesting payoffs of, of, of this map, that it's not just when Kansas was added to a state, like suddenly that rectangle was just full of people. You know, the, um, the patterns of settlement are, you know, so much more right. um, environmentally based, you know, kind of based on railroads, railroad routes, you know, kind of based on these other kinds of infrastructures. And that's a fact that totally makes sense, but it, it took for me almost seeing it on the map, like how these postal postal routes 
aren't just emerging out of nowhere or on a kind of even basis. Uh, usually, yeah, it's coupled with some kind of technology or some kind of waterway. And I think uh, the the map also, you know, kind of looking looking forward into the into the eighteen. So I'm hoping to to do. Um, I'm hoping to finish it. I'm hoping to have. <laughs> I, like I actually uh, initially, I was like, I want to go until Kansas's statehood or the end of the Civil War. One of those, you know, either either the beginner beginning or the end of the Civil War. Um, but then I was like, no, that's not enough. I want to keep going until the. Um, and then and then it, it, you can imagine continuing it now. Um, with post office closures, I think would right. be really interesting. So I'm hoping at some point to to carry on with that, but um, I think I'll need some research assistance and <laughs> more time, more time in DC. How long did it take you to put together what you have so far? It took me so I, it was a good year, but I was also I was working on other projects at the right. same time. So it was it was plenty of hours, lots of weekends, just kind of punching in. <laughs> um, yeah, kind of punching in and. And finding, yeah, I, and I tried to, I was trying to balance efficiency, you know, kind of adding, you know, kind of dots to the matrix, but then trying to be as accurate as possible because some, mm-hmm. you know, some of the names um, that I would find in Google Maps, you know, didn't correspond with the actual location of where the town would have been in the, you know, in 1813, for example, um, things moved, moved around a little bit. But yeah, I'm, I'm hoping, um, so my book project, uh, I'm hoping to finish those at about the same time, so I'm giving it maybe a year and a half, <laughs> um, and and we'll and with with help, I think that um, that might might work that way. But but moving moving further into the 19th century, one of the one of the interesting patterns that also emerged, and is again, it feels intuitive once once you come to this realization. But the moving into Kansas kind of illustrated this. Uh, but you see post offices kind of crawling through Kansas, um, along with the railroad in Nebraska as well, kind of down through Texas. Uh, but Oklahoma just remains a blank spot. Um, and largely, I mean, it, it was Native American land at that point. So it makes sense that there wasn't you know, kind of outposts for the, for the U.S. federal government you know, kind of throughout. Um, but I think it just shows how infrastructure um, and the way that post offices um, were added to the system was always political, you know, and kind of tied to, you know, kind of tied to different uh, kind of different values um, and and might uh, reveal patterns of uh, kind of uneven information exchange um, that that are important to remember, especially when we're <laughs> imagining how how to redress those things in, in the 21st century. That seems like a well it almost follows down the same path, like a side project that you came up with at the same time that probably helps with a lot of the research that you're doing. Is this something that was inspired by the work that you'd already been doing? Or is this something that you thought you might just take a stab at? I think I think one of the things that's important to me about my research um, is that it's legible to, to a broader <laughs> um, population. And I think my book, as much as I love it, and as much as I, you know, kind of polish the prose, like not a lot of people are going to read <laughs> a book of literary criticism, you know, kind of about 19th century fiction in the post office. Like some people will be really <laughs> excited about it. And I'm glad, <laughs> you know, I'm glad about that. Um, but I think something like this map, something that's just kind of visually like attractive um, and kind of conveys information uh, in, in a different way, um, almost opens up the, the audience for understanding how the post office might have been different, um, how it right. continues to change. Um, and that's and that's really important to me. So I, I don't want to just reach an audience of other academics um, or, you know, kind of interested, you know, kind of people. I, I kind of want to make make some of this information legible uh, to, to a broader public. 
we were talking about Edgar Allan, or you were talking about Edgar Allan Poe earlier. Are there any other, is there a short story or a book, somebody listening who has never made these connections between the post and literature before, is there a 19th century novel or short story that you think uh, people should check out that you think illustrates the, the research you're trying to convey? Is there something you would recommend to maybe somebody who has, again, who's never thought about these worlds intersecting before, where would you point them? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. And I think if you just if you want a good story and, you know, kind of how the post office, you know, kind of maybe was freighted um, with a different kind of like emotional weight, um, Melville's Bartleby the Scrivener, I think, is it's hard to beat. So uh, if, if you've read it, you know, we have Bartleby, the central character who's very befuddling kind of refuses everything, seems very depressed, you know, kind of down. And his his boss com- comes to the conclusion that he is in this state because of his work at the dead letter office. Um, the story is much more complicated and interesting than that. But the, uh, then thinking about the dead, dead letter office and what that might have you can look like and meant to people in the 1850s, I think shows um, kind of how the post office was set in a slightly different register. And then a second one, if you have more time and I think more patience for 19th century cars, um, I don't know if you're familiar with, um, it's uh, James Holbrook's uh, uh, 10 Years Among the Mailbags. Um, which is, uh, I, have, I have a couple of ancient editions of it sitting on my bookshelf because oh, that's, oh, that's, that, that's one I love. Whenever I see that in, you know, an older edition of that, I have to, I have to pick it up. Yeah. It's, it's fantastic. I mean, I think it's, um, you know, kind of just talks about what it was like to be a postal inspector in, in the, in, is it the 1850s? I think. Um, so it's, uh, you get a lot of those material details of the post office. Um, and he writes it in a way that's trying to, sensationalize a lot of what he's finding so a lot of the the people who he encounters he he writes much like they are uh characters from sensational fiction so um you know the nosy postmistress who's you know looking at everybody's letters um you know he probably really encountered that person but he also writes her as if she's a character from you know a Jane Austen novel or something like that so so Charles, let's see. Yeah, so that's. I, I, wanted, I wanted to go grab just a oh, copy fantastic. that I. Yeah, I, I, it, 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 it is not for everyone. I I agree that it requires some. Yeah. Even as an invested uh, philatelist, it's it's a tough one. But I I agree that it's um, uh, very unique in its portrayal of. Yeah, I, I won't get distracted by it now. But and, and I, I'm 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 glad you mentioned that one because it's a. What year was that? Fantastic. This edition's 1888. Wow. I, I think the original was from in the 1850s, but I'm not. That's entirely, what I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure who's back. Yeah. A mailbag is an epitome of human life. That's a, a bold <laughs> opening <laughs> sentence. Yeah. I'm not sure many people would uh, would agree with that today, but but yeah. I'm I'm, glad, I'm I'm really glad you mentioned that one because that's a yeah. that's a really special book. So yeah, and, and and my my book that I'm that I'm writing kind of. It gathers together a lot of moments. It's less about you know kind of sing, single books, but thinks about how um, travel writing in the in the 1830s um, just emerged from these. Um, but but a lot of the travel writers themselves didn't really care too much about the post office. They'll mention you know we stopped at the post office. I got off you know and went and had lunch somewhere somewhere else. So that so it does show up, but it's always you know kind of um, back in mind. Yeah, kind of background, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I think is interesting too. I think that yeah. It was all and, and, hidden in plain sight in a way. And and Washington Irving is is often credited as being sort of the first uniquely American, you know, that's sort of the, the birth of American literature. And mm-hmm. it, it's interesting to think that the, the post may have had, the, the Postal Service may have played a role 
in um yeah I, I guess it was natural that we would develop our own literary style at some point whether it was Irving or, or somebody else but it's interesting I'd never considered that the post office may have um in a roundabout way contributed to the birth of American literature as its own unique you know separate from what was going on in Europe it's it's interesting to gives me even more appreciation for the post office than right. than I already had which which was a considerable amount to begin with <laughs> tough to do <laughs> Yeah, and I think I think there is an interesting, you know, kind of counterpoint in in visual arts as well. Charles, you mentioned um, the the monograph about um, post office paintings, um, and so much of nineteenth century American art is about, um, you know, kind of the uh, the landscape, you know, kind of beautiful, very striking, um, sublime landscapes. And if you if you if you think about it, um, or if you go through and kind of look at the look at the details of how these artists got from place to place, they were writing postal infrastructure to get to Niagara Falls. You know, they would have been writing the stagecoach to get to get there. So, so oftentimes, um, these things that seem like they're you know kind of just coming out of the ether are actually really dependent <laughs> on public infrastructures um, like the post office in the 19th century. Wow. And ju- just this is the uh, monograph, 19th oh, yeah. century American genre painting. I can't read because it's um, yeah, I that. That's in tavern post offices. So I'll, I'll send you guys each a copy. And if anyone else listening wants a copy, I've got uh, about a dozen of them here. So send an email and I'll, I'll mail you one of these. Uh, but but I, 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 I think it is interesting how, um, again, I, I haven't really thought about it much until talking to you, but how um, sort of the birth of American culture and art and literature all is so, um, you know, inexorably tied to, to the post office. That was kind of all we had connect, you know, to get to Niagara Falls or to, um, you know, the, the, the railroads, the, the steamships were all so linked to the post. Um, it's really hard to imagine the history of this country without, without the mail. Right. Right. And, and even if you're, if you're thinking about what was traveling, um, because I think the travel writing shows us what was traveling alongside the mail. Um, but those postal policies in the in the middle decades of the 19th century also they opened up what could be sent through the mail. So magazine culture, um, cheap paperback fiction, um, the kind of novels about Panama and Mexico are um, they were they were made to send by mail, and that just opened up. Um, no longer did booksellers have to go from store to store, um, but they they could you know kind of just send reach their readers directly by by mail order so at the end of the 19th century um those those changes i think emerged in really interesting ways in inside the mailbag so can i ask you a bit about how you did your research or where did you look to to put all this information together for your book for your students uh you mentioned where you got the uh the mapping information from but but where are you pulling the research from for your for your class and for your work yeah that's a that's a great question and i i mean i i love going to archives so um just research libraries and i did my phd in new york i was at fordham university and i think that uh being in new york after living in kansas (laughs) where there aren't so many you know kind of research archives i i uh, i was just as excited to go as to as many as i could um and i knew i wanted to write about the post office so then I would go to the New York Public Library and just request any primary source rare materials that they had that were tied to postal history. So they have um, one of the things that they have there that I just really like as an object is the the postal register from Newport, Rhode Island um, from, what is it, uh, 1770 to 1772 or something wow. like that. So it's like an important, an important moment. 
Um, and it's just this log of all the mail that passed in and out of Newport. And it's just, it's fascinating, you know, like that has to matter in some way. And so I think I was almost gathering these really interesting objects. So the postal ledgers in, in that case, postal maps, postal routes in other cases, and just really thinking about how those material details, those ways of sorting information um, would have had measurable influences on the kinds of fiction that people would would write. So kind of how um, how people's imaginations would would stretch. So I think, yeah, it's a, a little bit piecemeal in some ways, you know, kind of looking from archive to archive and kind of learning about how the post office looked and doing that around New York at first, um, then Philadelphia a little bit later on. The National Archives has a lot of resources as well. So I'm kind of drawing from a lot of those places. Yeah. And it's it's been a lot of fun because the post office is really good at keeping records. <laughs> um, <laughs> they, yeah, there's a lot of them around. So. Yeah, we actually spoke with uh, Jenny Lynch, the uh, oh, cool. <laughs> yeah historian yeah. at the um, yeah uh, two weeks ago actually we learned a lot from her. Well, I have run out of questions unfortunately. <laughs> the, I, I, I this has been one of my favorite conversations we've had yeah. um, with with anyone. We we really appreciate you taking the time and um and and as your studies and everything progress, maybe we can catch back up with you. Um, down the great. line and, and do this again, I think would be a lot of fun. Cause I, this, yeah. you know, per, not, not that we don't enjoy every conversation <laughs> we have, but there, there's certainly ones that, that stand out. And this has been, um, you know, just again, a totally different way of thinking. Michael and I spend basically every day thinking about mail. Like <laughs> we, we can't escape it. It's our lives. And to, to, to come at it from such a different um, viewpoint is unique. I've, you know, sometimes I feel like we've done just about all the, the thinking about the post office we can and then this mm -hmm. opened now i'm going back thinking about books i've read recently like how do they relate to the to the post office um and i i, I think it, 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 again i hope people enjoy this one because for me this has been um yeah. really fascinating and, and we just really appreciate it thank you so much for for joining us and for the work that you're doing it's so interesting and and the using the post office as a teaching tool is not something that i hear of uh that often even in myself in college I had wished that our obviously because I was involved in philately already that that my uh, history teachers or, or English teachers such as yourself had used it as a teaching tool, but it never quite made the textbooks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, here's here's hoping we can change that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's such a fun part of the the conversation. I think it's um it's it's a great way into history. It's a, a great way into thinking about. Um, yeah, kind of the way that information uh, transmission has changed over time as well. So thank you. Um, yeah. So thank you for the conversation. Do you know any good post office jokes? I have one post office joke. I'd love to hear it. I don't know any. So now I'm, I'm... have you heard the one about this, uh, the letter without a stamp? No, you wouldn't get it. <laughs> That's, uh, I'm going to have to that's, use that one. That's great. Yeah, it's so bad. It's good. <laughs> that's my one. <laughs> that's great. Wow. That's really funny. Thank you so much. Yeah, well, um, thanks, guys. Take good care. Yeah. You too. Thanks. thanks so much. Talk to you soon and stay safe. Yeah, you too. Bye. So, Michael, did that live up to your expectations? Because I think that was one of the best conversations we've ever had. That was a fantastic way to start off the Last episode, we spoke to Ryan and Jess. It was. Let me let me tell you something. <clears throat> if there's one thing our listeners love, 
it's when we try and explain the schedule <laughs> to them. When we try and get into the weeds of what day we had the conversation versus when it was edited. When it, that's what people keep asking for more of. It's like, can you go into more of the back office housekeeping stuff? Right. So let's just say that was a great way to kick off the year. And presumably people aren't going to be like, wait a minute, Ryan and Jessica debuted on the 4th. <laughs> Michael lied when he said that. People yeah. aren't going to care that much. So let's just say that was a great way to kick off the year. That, that was. Yeah, that was a great way to kick off the year. Like I said, when, when we were talking to her, we think about mail mm-hmm. so much. Like yeah. our lives. I look behind you. You look behind me. Our lives are strong. To have somebody come in and like still change the way we look at things. Uh, you talk to most collectors and you can – it's like, oh, like I've thought about – you know, this postal history usage before you, but it, it sort of ties into something. But to, again, to have somebody just come in out of left field and be like, I look at Washington Irving and the mail. It's like, I think it's fascinating. I think it's yeah. fantastic. I, 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 maybe it's cause my background is in his, I, I was a history minor when I was in college. Um, maybe it's because that's how I came into the hobby in the first place was through history. But to have somebody who just looks at it in such a unique way, I yeah. really relate to and I really get excited by. Yeah, that's exactly the point of <clears throat> of this interview is we were looking for something that was slightly different than what we normally do. It, she had so much information that we just don't normally think of. And I think the pandemic mail portion where they were mailing out vaccines to people to uh, assemble themselves like an Ikea chair and then and then take the smallpox vaccine from from the mail i mean that's that's absolutely incredible if you told somebody in 1813 that it was like an ikea chair they probably would have looked at you like you had two heads yeah they would um, when was ikea that's for that that's not the point of this podcast <laughs> <laughs> now not the yet. next challenge the next challenge for you michael mm-hmm. is i want to find a pure mathematics professor who uses postal history in their lesson planning to um yeah to to decipher quantum mechanics exactly like a, like a physics professor who, yeah. and real quick stories so i and I, I started talking to you about this before we started recording but i was uh, taking a history of the revolutionary war class in college mm-hmm. and the professor our, our final assignment was to write an essay about the revolutionary war i don't remember the assignment specifically but i said that i wanted to write my essay about stamps commemorating the 150th anniversary of the end of the war that were released in like 1926, 27, 28. I said, Mm -hmm. I want to look at how the war was depicted on postage stamps in the 1920s. Was it a legitimate historical depiction of the Revolutionary War, or was this the 1920s imposing their cultural zeitgeist on things that were a century and a half old? I explained this to my professor. I said, I've got this great idea for a paper. He thought I was a lunatic for suggesting this. Um, I probably was a lunatic for suggesting this, but I wrote a paper that I was really proud of. Yeah. And, um, and uh, I think it shows that, you know, again, you can use, um, you can use stamps to, to go all these different directions. You know, we, we, we talked to um, Dr. Potroff. She looks at how the post office affected how, how how his how history in the post I'm trying to think of how to phrase this yeah how the post office all affected made, history how, how the post office affected history and and then you know you get you get into the 20th century and all of a sudden the post office is is imprinting Reflecting itself on, on historical, exactly it's going the other direction yeah and sort of changing historical narratives with how stamps depict history so I I feel very um uh, sort of invigorated by this conversation that we right. had. 
because I feel like now I want to go like think about this in so many other ways, books I've read that have to do with the post office or stamps depicting uh, historical events. There's just so many different avenues I want to go with this. I think this uh, really was an eye-opening conversation for me personally. Yeah, it, absolutely. And and, and you got to think she, this was a almost an hour long interview. She teaches a course on this. So I'm actually going every... to enroll at PC, I think, <laughs> just to take this course. Yeah, she teaches a, a, a full course load on this. So a full semester's worth of information where she compares literary works and the impact that the post post office had on them. So I just cannot imagine how much more information there is out there on this topic. Let's that she has. We can be like we can make those those you know older freshmen who you always have you know, wonder about. Yeah. Um, you know. I saw that Vince Vaughn movie. Yeah, I was, I was gonna say we go back to college. We can join yeah. a fraternity, a stamp fraternity. Mm-hmm. It would be fun. Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to it. Really, I haven't had a proper excuse to use a backpack in about ten years. <laughs> Um, I, I can only imagine how interesting this class is, and I wish I had had something similar while I was right. Yeah, I mean, I I touched upon that briefly, but at, at, involved in philately, I, I kept waiting for the day that I'd show up to history class and they'd talk about the post office or the creation of the post office and and how it affected westward expansion, and it just never it never came. They never put the post office in history, and maybe I was taking the wrong classes. Obviously, I was. Yeah. We should have been at Boston College. Yeah, right now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Michael, this was fun. As always, people listening can find us on Spotify, Google, Apple, YouTube. Wherever you find your podcasts, wherever Wherever you find find your YouTubes. Like I mentioned, if anybody wants a copy of uh, Robert and Diane's uh, excellent monograph on 19th century genre painting, I've got a couple of them. Harmer has an ad on the back page, so this is my selfish my selfish plug here, but if you would like one of these, I've got a couple of them. Uh, the first ad. couple of people that email philatelypodcast at gmail.com, I will send one of these to as a gift from Conversations with Philatelists. That is our first giveaway. Our first giveaway. So let's say the first 10 people to email in the next right. 15 minutes. <laughs> um, no, the first 10 people to email, uh, I will send these to. Perfect. And if that- you're the 11th, I'll probably feel guilty and send you one as well. Um, but, but, uh, yeah, please get in touch with us if if you'd like one. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be great. I'm going to put all the links for Dr. Potroff's website. The article about this map beforehand. I want to go play around with this now. Yeah, it's, it's super interesting. You just click play and it every single month, it, it, of every single year, starting from 1709 to 1817, it just, it shows you how the post offices, when they started popping up, I found Concord, New Hampshire. It was uh, April 1793. Concord, New Hampshire post office just popped up on the screen. And it is really interesting because you can zoom in, you just hit play, you can see the post offices populate. And it, it's it's really interesting. I'm looking forward to her finishing it and then maybe uh, selfishly hoping she puts the mail routes in there in between the post offices. Uh, it sounds like she needs more work to do. I was going to say you uh, you're, you're laying out her next several years of research for her right her right yeah so, maybe right, we can right. hire her uh, an assistant uh, <laughs> conversations with uh, philatelist sponsored assistant to help her populate this map <laughs> Michael this has been a yep. lot of fun um, next week we've got a big one yeah 
Next week, we've got a really exciting one. Somebody who is uh, unbelievably instrumental in my uh, long-term participation in the hobby. I think you as well. Oh, yeah. Uh, one of, one of um, uh, not just a great collector, but one of the kindest, most generous men uh, on the face of the earth, I would say. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm going to leave it at that. But I'm, oh, okay. I mean, we're going to leave it at that. Um, it's not Bill Gates. <laughs> but uh, it's going to be a really fun one. It's going to be a really exciting one, and I'm looking forward to that. So, yeah. you know, th- this week and that week, uh, this week and next week, back to back, I think we're already kicking off the new year on a really good note. Yeah, it's exciting stuff. Michael, as always, this was awesome. We'll uh, we'll talk real soon. Yeah, see you. Uh, see you next time. Sounds good. All right.